0: In this episode, we speak with Dr. Paul Birch, Deputy Director of Science of the new Land and Water Business Unit at the CSIRO. Wastewater-based epidemiology approaches, that's to detect COVID-19 in wastewater, are being implemented worldwide as an environmental surveillance approach to inform Health Authority Decision Making. Dr Birch's team, flushed with success, are at the forefront of developing more accurate tests for COVID-19 in wastewater in Australia. Dr Birch, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mike. Can you tell us about the tests for COVID-19 in wastewater? Do they require further development? And can you explain what the tests tell us and what they don't tell us?
1: Yeah, sure, Mike. Uh, The testing wastewater for viruses or even chemicals uh, is an area called wastewater-based epidemiology, and it's uh, actually uh, been practiced in many countries for viruses and other diseases for for many, many years, and in fact decades. Um, And what we're doing around uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, is actually looking for specific gene fragments uh, of the virus. So it's a molecular fingerprint. Uh, And so we collect the wastewater, we concentrate the virus, we extract the uh, uh, genetic material, which in this case is uh, RNA. uh, This virus has an RNA-encoded genome instead of DNA. Uh, And then we use a process that's very similar to what uh, many of your viewers would uh, be aware of in these crime scene investigation shows where you process that genetic material and put it in uh, a machine that's really a molecular photocopier and you make millions, uh, up to a billion copies of the gene uh, so that you can actually uh, determine that it is present or not uh, in the sample.
0: Do you have the same issues that's been associated with um, PCR tests performed on people and how accurate are they and how do you avoid false positives?
1: Well, we do. Uh, you can imagine wastewater being a much more complex media than humid fluids, mm. uh, and so uh, there's actually quite a bit more involved uh, in terms of uh, getting around uh, some of the uh, potential problems. Uh, but yeah, it's really about uh, le- good laboratory control and workflows, uh, QAQC protocols but it also goes all the way back to sampling. And so sampling in the field, much, much like the human uh, testing as well, uh, some of the early false positives were just due to sampling errors uh, and, and cross-contamination. Uh, so again, this is a bit more challenging in a way because uh, you're sampling wastewater, transporting it to a lab and then processing it. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there are uh, potentials certainly for false positives. But if you have well-trained personnel and, and as I mentioned, the workflows and the QAQC protocol, uh, false positives uh, aren't really a problem. Uh, what's more troubling is false negatives. Mm, why would that be? Well, so the false negatives is, uh, is because wastewater uh, is quite complex, and it, and it does go as I mentioned to the sampling. So mm. we've looked at different sampling methods, for example, and found that uh, uh, having to integrate sampling over a 24-hour period is 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 pretty critical to get uh, uh, a reasonable sample. Uh, but oftentimes uh, there some of the testing pe- the uh, testing. Authorities are just going out and taking what's known as a grab sample, so just going out and, and, and dipping um, a, a sampler into uh, the wastewater. So they're taking a, a single uh, sample, and we find that's quite unreliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then it, and then all the way through to processing the material, so uh, concentrating the virus, for example. We've optimized those methods, and uh, we've uh, uh, been able to increase the efficiency of capture of the virus up to about 67 percent. But there are methods being used around the world that are only two percent efficient. Mm. And so you can imagine then if you're at a low concentration already, uh, if you uh, have just taken a grab sample, which is going to be quite variable and uh, oftentimes uh, not nearly as sensitive as a integrated uh, sample over time, uh, then, you know, all of those things really add up, uh, Mike, to where you can get these false negatives uh, uh, when the uh, virus is actually present in wastewater so it is tricky uh, but there are ways to um, uh, to use the best uh, protocol that are available uh, globally and and there's a there's a global collaboration uh, that's going on that's quite active in terms of continually improving methods and we're uh, our, uh, our folks in CSRO are, are at the forefront of developing those
0: we hear uh, and it's becoming a little more regular than I would like uh, we hear of um of uh, the, these these samples being taken in various locales, such as in Townsville in Queensland and uh, uh, Rockhampton and uh, the Gold Coast, and there's you, you start to fear that it may be politicised, that it's going to become a, a lockdown or whatever the, the government would like to do. Um, how accurate, though, are you pinpointing uh, getting the right location of these carriers? And is this, you know
1: cause for concern well so there's another uh positive test that some people call false fast positive uh, we wouldn't uh, mm-hmm. and that is individuals that recover continue to shed the virus uh, they shed the virus at, at relatively low levels uh, and it's most likely that they're not infectious but we have evidence now from an individual in Kansas where we were getting positives for some time that that individual actually tested uh, positive in a clinical test uh eight weeks Uh, after they had recovered and it turns out that they weren't positive but Mm. uh, the nasal pharyngeal swab which is the one that they uh, oftentimes uh, give to humans uh, came up positive and then they came up negative the next day but it it was it was clear that that individual was shedding the virus even though they were recovered and and not infectious and we were likely picking up uh, uh, their uh, signature in the uh, wastewater Mm -hmm. Uh, and so We can also uh, get an idea about the relative intensity, how much is out there. So, for example, as we uh, uh, looked through February and March, you know, our our wastewater results tracked very well with uh, clinical uh, data. And so, what you're really trying to do with this test is is get those early warning detection. Uh, And you'll you'll know here in Queensland, uh, the chief health officer. talks about those positives uh, and and mentions that it could be someone that's recovered, we don't know. Uh, There's no need uh, for fear at this stage, Uh, but uh, it does raise awareness, and they do then set up -up, uh, pop-up testing stations Mm -hmm. and really uh, uh, request that people go and get tested if they're showing any symptoms. Because one of the problems right now, Mike, uh, for us here in Australia more generally, but certainly here in Queensland, is complacency. Yeah. Uh, and, and as you've seen, uh, these outbreaks can uh, occur very, very quickly and spread very ra- rapidly, especially with these new variants. And so it's really important to get it early uh, and have the uh, the reasonable public health response.
0: Interesting you mentioned the complacency thing. I totally agree with you. Um, uh, go back. Six weeks ago, maybe eight weeks ago, and everywhere you walked, there was hand sanitizer, and there was this, you know, so many in the store, and was so many in the, uh, in the entertainment venue, and I can tell you now that's just gone out of the uh, out of the window. Even at gyms, they used to be wiping down, and you know all this sort of stuff. Uh, it's almost stopped, and that complacency bit, whether it's just a, um, a Queensland thing that she'll be right, mate, or whether. We've become immune to the um, to the information that's been pumped out to us from from government and from other authorities. So you're you're dead right about the complacency. What do you feel about that? Do you think we need to just sort of kickstart ourselves and get back into being, you know, cleaning our hands and making sure we're one point five meters away if we can, and just just little things.
1: Yes, I think uh, we're going to be managing this for some time, mm. uh, Mike, and we're going to have to. Uh, continue to remember to uh, practice those uh, good hygiene uh, practices as well as uh, social distancing when, whenever possible mm. uh, and and yeah I mean I think uh, the complacency risk is is, is quite uh, large and I and, and I uh, I find that queensland health uh, uses the wastewater data just to continue to use uh, to, to raise that awareness the virus is circulating in the community don't Uh, At this stage, it was uh, it's likely low levels. It may not be an individual that's contagious within the community. uh, But please, uh, you know, be aware that you need to uh, practice uh, good hygiene and get tested if if you have even uh, very mild symptoms. Mm. Because one of the things that the the the, one of the powers of wastewater-based epidemiology uh, is that uh, we know that individuals that are pre-symptomatic, that is, uh, haven't yet. Uh, displayed symptoms, even though they're infected, uh, or more importantly, those that are asymptomatic. Uh, and uh, the percent of individuals that are asymptomatic, that is individuals that never show uh, symptoms, is quite high. So it, it's been, it, it ranges between 40 and 60 percent um, uh, globally. And, and so that's a high number. So you have people in the community uh, that could be spreading uh, uh, the the virus that causes COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. and and not even be uh, not even know that they're doing that, of course. And again, the wastewater signal would merge and we would know, uh, and we could pinpoint where that was happening, and and take the appropriate public health intervention uh, uh, actions in that uh, specific area. What's the
0: frequency and number of tests done so far in Australia, uh,
1: Mike? I don't know uh, over all of Australia because um, uh, you know there's different. Differences in testing in in the different uh, jurisdictions. So uh, some states, as you know, like Queensland, Victoria, and New South Wales are actually posting their data online. Uh, Others aren't. Uh, and so it's it's really difficult uh, for me to give you a view of all of Australia uh, but since we are working quite closely with Queensland health i can tell you that uh, they're measuring uh 42 wastewater treatment plants on a regular basis twice a week mm-hmm. uh, and that co- that covers 70% of the population of Queensland so so it's it's quite significant and and, and to date we've we've uh, run uh you know uh, well over a 1000 samples and um you know we continue to um Increase the frequency and as well as the number, uh, based on Queensland's health appetite of even going to individual assets such as prisons, for example, Mm. uh, uh, or uh, uh, smaller communities. And and we are we are in the process of developing some um, some test methods that could actually be passive, uh, which would be much easier in remote areas, for example. Mm. Fascinating.
0: Um, Yet another um, another weapon in the fight against COVID-19. It's good to know that the uh, Queensland government and the CSIRO uh, that our business is your business, so to speak. Uh, uh, Paul, thank you very much for your time and uh, all the best. Thank you, Mike. In India, we dig deeper into a tragedy that occurred recently in northern India, where a part of a glacier broke off, triggering a massive flood, washing away parts of two hydropower plants and other infrastructure, and leaving 50 lives lost and over 150 feared dead. While some climate experts rush to declare this a climate change event from rising temperatures, rational observers point to other causes, including construction of back-to-back dams and a rush for renewable energy projects that may have destabilised the fragile environment in the Himalayas. Sanjeev Aluwalia is an advisor at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. Sanjeev, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Mike. Great to see you and to be here with you in your studio.
0: Now, can you give us an update of the damage and lives lost by the glacier break in
2: Uttarakhand? Um, You know, as as disasters go, uh, in terms of human lives, of course, even a single human life gone is a life wasted. It's a terrible agony. But the human uh, loss has been limited. Um, and most of them were actually workers who were working on these two hydro plants, which have been affected. So what they have found is about 58 um, bodies, corpses, and it is suspected that another 140 odd people are missing, which could include villagers, you know, a few villagers who, um, who might have been swept away by by the Great Flood that uh, happened after this slab, you know, this sort of massive slab, overhanging slab of a glacier just came crashing down into the river, creating a a huge sort of a tidal wave, uh, 15 to 20 meters high uh, in places where the gorge is narrow, you know, I mean, these gorges tend to be very narrow so even with a relatively small amount of money uh, amount of uh, water uh, the tidal force becomes pretty extreme and this was quite violent.
0: In your article you say it's unclear if the large number of projects and rush for growth may have caused the disaster. Can you give us an idea of the nature and scale of the projects being built in the area.
2: Well, you know, in the um, in in the area of this this particular riverine area, which is the Alakananda uh, area, the total area is roughly around you know seven or eight thousand uh, square kilometers, and there are uh, about uh, thirteen uh, projects which are uh, functioning or are about to be functioning, and there are another about 14 odd uh, locations where projects might come up in future. Though I must tell you, Mike, that uh, we're actually sort of trying to uh, close the stable door, you know, after the horse is bolted, because uh, uh, hydropower development has really been overtaken by the technological developments in solar power. So if you want to go for renewable energy, I think, Uh, Most people would be looking more at solar power today uh, because of the great push given by our present government, which is Mr. Modi's government. Uh, Rather than go into all the complexities of hydropower and the fact that, you know, you have interface issues with communities, you have problems with flooding like we just saw. Uh, And it's a clunky uh, development as compared to hydropower, which is uh, easy to put up. Um, and uh, gives decent returns. So um, I think uh, there aren't going to be very many new projects coming up and also a little bit of history out here. You know, uh, out of these uh, 20-odd projects, future and proposed and current, and only about five or six projects are large ones, which are in the region of, you know, 400 megawatts each or and at least more than 100 megawatts most of the others are small ones each one uh, generating no more than 25 megawatts and the history of this actually dates back to 1990s because that's when the, if you remember the Rio Summit happened in 1992 and as a consequence of that, you know um, uh, large dams uh, came under huge criticism there was a world commission of dams which was set up in 1994 or thereabouts and um, the uh, results were very adverse, and uh, as a result of this, uh, the World Bank pulled out of Bed uh, dam financing. And so we had a huge project in India going on, the uh, Sardar Sarova, which was also called the Narmada Sagar Dam, and they pulled out of it. So this dam, which was started in 1961, actually wasn't completed till 2017, just about three years ago. So you know, after about the 90s, um, large dams became unpopular and on environmental and ecological grounds. So um, you know, the holy grail became small hydropower because it, they were easier to put up and find locations for, and they were relatively innocuous in terms of ecological disturbance. Uh, so that is why you know, in the last what 30 odd years, there's been a proliferation of these small hydro plants. In our search for clean power, but I think uh, solar in the last ten years uh, has gone uh, tremendously ahead, particularly because of technological developments which are continuing. And uh, I think small hydro has kind of had its day. Mm.
0: The it's uh, most- by building these these hyd- these, these dams uh, and relying on hydro, um, I think the Supreme Court and I think after the. Uh, 2013 um, flood they sort of banned uh, any new dams uh, because it can make landscape more unstable this I would imagine is where solar comes into it because solar is basically the uh, just the building of large panels Um, so does this already make the dams old news
2: well, Mike, we need to distinguish between, you know, not all hydropower is run via dams. Mm. I mean, uh, we have what's called run of river um, hydropower, which essentially means that, you know, you tap the water at a higher level, pipe it down to a lower level and run the turbine through the pipe. Mm. And so you don't really have a dam in the classics. You don't have a Gordon dam, for instance, you know, behind the hydropower. Mm. Um, what you do have is a rush of water coming down in a turbine through a pipe and one of these pipes is actually where most people while constructing the pipe got caught and at the end of that is a turbine so uh, the Supreme Court uh, the verdict is uh, we had versus dams and yes I don't think there are any large dams that are going to probably uh, come up in the future and uh, as you correctly assess, uh, in any ways, if you're looking for green power, you know, um, solar is a better way to go. Though, mind you, uh, Nepal is still constructing, uh, our friends to the north are still constructing um, big hydro. And so there is, an, what we're trying to do is try to network, you know, South Asia into one grid. Mm. So that wherever there's hydro potential, whether it's in Nepal or in maybe in our natural Pradesh at a future date, uh, wherever power is generated, what's important is to you know feed in clean power to those who want it. So we're trying to develop a South Asian grid, which will help us do that. So a little more flexibility mm-hmm. there on hydro. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can kind of outsource you know hydro to our friends in Nepal, who are better placed to produce it. Mm. And we could look at solar, and you know we could look at other things that come uh, up in future.
0: Are these projects that a combination of uh, government and Private projects, and are uh, many supported by large government subsidies. I mean, for example, we talk about uh, solar. You know, solar truly is the most, the one that makes the most sense because you mean you've got a fair amount of sunshine in India, and uh, it just seems like a, a lay down was there almost that this is the way uh, it should go.
2: Yes, I mean, uh, but you know, I mean, the in solar, for instance, the the costs have come uh, have got, have crashed mm-hmm. costs of equipment so in actual fact today uh, it's fairly competitive uh, even without a big subsidy um, and same is the case really with uh, uh, small hydro see large dams the, are different because large dams are multiple purpose dams uh, don't forget that we still need drinking water, right? I mean, you have to trap drinking water somewhere. Mm. Cities are growing. Uh, India is very under-urbanized. By 2040, uh, we're probably going to be, you know, taking uh, another 500 million people into cities and they're going to come in any anyway. They are coming, but they don't find place to live today. And water is scarce. So you can't, completely do away with the concept of dams, though you have to think of it rationally, whether you need more smaller dams, which have less of an impact or whatever. There are lots of options out there, depending also on the ecology of the particular location. But we have to think seriously about drinking water. Mm. And in India, because we, you know, like 45 odd percent of our population lives off agriculture, believe it or not. Uh, There's still in agriculture. We have to think of water, irrigation for that that particular uh, for 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 agriculture. Mm. So you know, I think um, uh, a great deal of more thought has to go into the sequestering of water in appropriate ways, and also its distribution. But most importantly, on its pricing and you know the incentives that are available to people today to use it well. Uh, government has started a program. You know, very we, very we are very impressed by Israel because they use water extremely well. You know, kind of they <laughs> made the desert bloom, mm. and they've done it using technology. So I think those attempts are also on to use technology, not just in drip irrigation, but also in you know forecasting when the land needs water so that you don't over irrigate. So all this is a it's a messy uh, landscape. As always, but I think there's a lot of activity uh, going on, and it's all in the right direction. That's mm. the good news.
0: Interesting in the media when they, I mean, that's my my main bugbear is the media. They they will present a story, uh, especially nowadays, for clickbait. So, the uh, first thing that we saw with the uh, when the glacier decided to do bad things uh, was that this could be the end of the end because of you know the unstable areas and that uh, India had decided to put up 450,000 dams and that you're going berserk with dynamite and changing the whole landscape in reality though it's not but the dilemma is as you said water where do you get water from Is it uh, I know Israel have have you know using technology but there's a bit of a difference in population
2: size yes <laughs> To to put it as an understatement, yeah, Yeah, I mean, uh, no, I mean, first on the media, look, I mean, I I think, you know, the the Indian media and media everywhere is a very necessary part of life. Mm. Uh, Don't get me wrong over there. I have no gripes with the media at all. Uh, and, And frankly, you know, if I was living next to a river, uh, I would be very happy that there is a media out there, and they're more important. they are sort of activists of different kinds out there, you know, highlighting the possible danger so that government doesn't lose track of the fact that there are people living along the river who can just get swept away, and some of them just did. And as you said, in 2013, 5,000 of them died, and many of them were pilgrims because, as you know, India is a very religious country, and a lot of our, uh, of the Hindu shrines are up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, in in Khan, we have four major shrines. And people flock to these shrines, uh, uh, you know, as out of religiosity, but also for a holiday. You know, it's a sort of a combination. Mm-hmm. Everything, uh, you know, everything is a celebration in India. So religion is also a form of celebration. And so uh, Indians take their holidays when they go to the shrines, much like you'd go to the beach. Okay. So, uh, yes, and that does bring about certain very important concerns if, you're, if, you're, if you live in Uttarakhand. By the way, I mean, I live just on the other side of the glacier that uh, collapsed. So uh, I see these uh, very close. And, uh, you know, these are genuine concerns. It's not that these gen- concerns are all overblown and we should just forget about it. Not at all. Uh, Ecology is a terribly sensitive thing. And, you know, to play with ecology, one has to be um, very aware that one could end up doing the wrong thing, exactly like it is with genes, you know. Mm. Uh, If you're playing with genes, you don't know where you're ending up. Uh, And it's the same with ecology. And uh, often, like genes, there's no going back once you take a step forward in a certain direction. So I think that... um, Regulation, better regulation is definitely, definitely required. Sensible ecological regulation and much of it springs actually from good pricing, you know, of, uh, of incentives. Uh, we are not so good in India still at presenting good incentives, you know, good economic incentives. We go more by supervision and, uh, and very intrusive regulation. But often we have seen across the world and in India, too, that these don't work very well unless you're a you're a very hard state, maybe like China. And we're very far of that. You know, we're actually a soft state. We uh, people here more or less rules by rule by consent. You know, mm-hmm. there is no uh, diktat. There's no top down authority that you can use to tell three million people to go away from the three gorges. Right. Or. Whatever was the level of displacement over there? The Sardar Sarovar, you know, um, project displaced two hundred fifty thousand people, mm. but it was delayed and had and therefore took sixty years to build. So I think there is a sensibility in India that you can't fool around with people's rights, and so you have to take all that into consideration. Given that as a cultural or a or, you know a constitutional. Uh, environment. Uh, On ecology, again, uh, I think we have no option except to go slow when we consider changing the dynamics of any place uh, dramatically. And it's the same for the hills. It's the same for the mangroves and so on, you know, for the Western Ghats, uh, for our biospheres and Kerala and so on. I think we have to be very careful. So the media plays a very good role over there. It helps activists do their job, and I personally appreciate that because I live in a fragile zone, mm. and it is a fragile zone. They're, these are young mountains. You see it all the time, you know. I mean, uh, there, there are shudders, there's earthquakes which leave minor cracks here and there. These things happen, mm. so we have to be
0: careful. Just <laughs> quickly, uh, renewables in India, I mean, yeah, plenty of sunshine, um, I, I would imagine there are some gentle breezes here and there for uh, the, the windmills. Um, we saw what happened in Texas when they relied on the, re, uh, the renewables there. Um, it froze, and so, so they have no, no energy. Um, what are the, the, in, in India, if you were to go down the uh, renewable path, such as solar and, uh, and the turbines... What are some of the unseens that we don't hear of that may place those renewables in jeopardy? Uh,
2: the good news, uh, Mike, is that we're very far from, you know, reaching the tipping point. I mean, places like Germany, for instance, 60% of their power comes from renewables, right? Mm-hmm. So we are uh, in, the, in kind of the, you know, the, the, the low, the high double digits, so about 15 to 20% of our uh, power is generated from new renewables. And uh, so we're very far from a tipping point where people generally take to be 40. And that is what uh, the national plan is, that by 2030, we should at least have 40% of the power come to our, coming to us from renewable uh, sources. Uh, also, um, you know, um, unlike in Texas, uh, which is a very rich place, India still remains a fairly poor country, and uh, though there is a top layer of you know one percent or ten percent of Indians who are very rich, I mean who could be rich even in Brisbane or wherever or in Melbourne, uh, but uh, you know there are there is a there is the bottom two quintiles, forty percent of Indians uh, live a pretty scratchy existence. Um, India India still needs a great deal of power and we're going to be using all types um, without neglecting any particular source that we have. And I would actually go to the extent of including coal in that, uh, which is uh, dirty uh, fuel, no doubt. But, you know, we have no gas and it's very expensive to import it. Lots of price fluctuations. We're still a very poor country. And so and very and very poorly uh, electrified, if, if I may point out, uh, that's a very important thing. our uh, uh, per capita consumption of electricity is extremely, extremely low, yeah. and so it is. It has to go up if we are to live in the modern world. And so, uh, energy development in India is is going to be multifocal, you know, for a significant amount of time. But we are very conscious of the fact that you know uh, we must uh, add as much clean energy to the basket as we can we are helped by the fact that battery technology has improved considerably and it's hopefully going it to become even better in future particularly because you have all these fancy cars from tesla and all coming in you know mm. so battery technology is uh, going to really take off over the next 10 years which means that some of the problems with renewables would actually go away because you can actually you would then be able to generate power <clears throat> from solar power and then store it and during night time just draw it from and you have a huge big tesla in australia you have a massive uh, battery farm operating Uh, i don't know whether it's experimental or operational but uh, it seems to be doing quite well so so i think uh renewables so-called new renewables are soon going to become old renewables and they're going to they're going to acquire characteristics very similar to what more traditional energy forms already have which is reliability predictability and so on
0: to achieve these goals uh, and projects to make them happen uh, would it be uh, more of a investment from overseas or or private investment within india or would it be a combination of government and private
2: uh, are you referring here to power, electric yes, power? To, yes,
0: yeah, to, to energy, to to uh, yeah. to uh, yeah. say solar and well, uh, and turbines yeah. and hydro.
2: Yes, you know, uh, Mike, electric power. Strangely, uh, I, it's none of these. It's that it's that our utility, our distribution utilities, are predominantly still state government owned, and they're very badly managed, and as a result of that they continually make losses. So they do not recover even the costs of providing electricity to the number of people that they do. And those people are going to increase in future. And because India is a poor country, you know our definition of a lifeline supply is rather generous compared to the more traditional points of view. Uh, because we're trying to actually provide electricity to people as a tool and it's not just a tool, as we've seen, uh, you know, in the epidemic. It's even a tool for education, because you don't have electricity, you can't charge your phones, you can't even attend lessons, right? So it kind of that's that sort of highlights how important electricity is in the modern world. And if you're if you're looking at um, following a profession, uh, there are many professions that you're cut out of if you're not if you don't have if you don't have electricity, mm-hmm. so um, so I think that uh, um, so I think that we we uh, we 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 need to do better on the distribution side. I hope the government in the budget has said that uh, it would like to pursue a large privatisation program. Uh, it's been said before, but we hope they mean it this time around and. Uh, if that happens and, you know, if we privatize distribution in India more significantly than it is today, then there is hope that there would be higher efficiency and uh, that, you know, the the end of the pipe would become a commercially viable option. Today, Mm. it is not. So the problem here is not the lack of capacity. We have 35 gigawatts of gas sitting idle because if we were to run them, the financial load on the distribution utilities would be higher and they would be they would go further into a loss. Mm. So the it's an internal problem that we have to fix, that we have to fix the distribution utilities to work on commercial on a commercial basis. So that the the you know the electricity industry at the end of the pipe becomes a commercially viable operation. And uh, if that were to happen money would not be a problem at all uh, to feed the industry. Uh, So that's where the problem lies. It's not an external problem, it's an internal problem. It's a domestic
0: problem. You mentioned, just just briefly winding this up, you mentioned that um, by 2040, you expect the cities to have an extra half a billion people. Yes. How will the cities survive? What do they have to do to make
2: it livable? Yes. Good question. Uh, well, I mean, to one, one is, you know, if you actually look at Indian cities today, <clears throat> they're not the best planned cities uh, in any way to start yeah. with. So it's not just the half a billion who are going to be arriving, <laughs> but it's uh, also that, you know, uh, let's say the, the you know, the 700 million people who may be living in a city of some form, how many of them are living in an appropriately, um, you know, congenial condition, mm. and uh, you know, most of our cities, a large, well, in some cities, forty percent of the cities is us what we call a slum. Mm. In other words, it's totally unregulated, um, unregulated um, development, and it's just people who've built anywhere, anything. Often, sewage disposal is a problem. Um, delivery of water, clean water, is a problem, and so on. So I think uh, Indian uh, cities, um, again, is an area which is a, a sort of an area where deep thinking is required as mm. to what exactly needs to be done to bring them around. And my feel is that, yet again, you know, um, we have to um, we have to make cities more egalitarian than they are. Mm. Um, cities today are predominantly driven by the uh, the, pre- the predilections and the requirements of the elite, you know, which is this top sort of 20% who live in cities. So that is, those are the people that the city is actually catering to. And those are the people that the city is taxing. The other people are not even taxed, you know. Um, so I think this has to change because mm-hmm. I think the difference between agricultural uh, you know, occupa- occupations and living, rural living and city living, is that there are more obligations on anybody who becomes a city citizen, if I may call him that, mm. as they are uh, on somebody who's you know a farmer in a rural area, and paying tax and getting taxed is, and you know, being willing to pay tax is uh, one of those things, um, because unless and until we start planning for the bottom. Billion, you know, um, this this issue of dysfunctional cities, dysfunctional hospitals, uh, dysfunctional regulations is not going to go away. Uh, that th- this is a tough one because mm. you know we're we're and we're not that old a country. You're not like say the United States with two two hundred odd you know history, just seventy five years old, and. We came from a bad place, uh, you know, in the sense that systematically um, the 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 belief that every life is equal was um, drilled out of the country through the long colonial uh, rule. Mm. And so while uh, people empathize with this concept uh, uh, theoretically that you know everybody is equal, uh, the fact is, everybody's not. <laughs> we all know it, you mm. know. Uh, most of most developing countries are really a co- coalition of elites who manage the place, and India is no different. And that's strictly not the way, you know, a city uh, can be managed unless you want to become like uh, Rio, uh, you know, where there are battlefields within the city that police can't enter. Mm. It's uh, Uh, because of poverty. Poverty and Mm -hmm. inequality. So I think these are issues that, they're very deep Mm -hmm. issues, not easy to solve, particularly by politicians, you know, who after all are elected people. And uh, one could say that, well, I mean, the mass of the people who elect them are the dispossessed. So they should cater to them. Mm -hmm. That is true. But it's a resources issue when you, you know, uh, try and handle it at the bottom of the pipe. So I think that uh, it has to go slowly in India, a very, very large country with, you know, very different problems all around. Mm. can't go fast, mm. shouldn't go fast. And, um, but we are getting that. there. There's no doubt about that. And I think there's no better example of that than the fact that, you know, for the first time in the history of India, a person, uh, you know, whose dad used to just sell tea at a railway station has become prime minister. You know, this is so unimaginable for a country like India, but it's happened. Uh, And so I think these are signs of change, Mm. and they're good signs of change. I think they're helpful signs of change. So I'm hopeful. Well, we have this huge, huge landmass in
0: Australia and about 26 million people, and we have trouble. So... um, (laughs) (laughs) I think I I, I think I'll just let the politicians at this stage worry about and ponder the future. Sanjeev, it was a real pleasure. We have to do this again because there are so many issues to talk about. uh, And maybe you and I can put our heads together and uh, may not be the answer, but at least we're on the right track for a, a better life.
2: Absolutely, Mike. You
0: and I are going to change the world. (laughs) Well, maybe not, but you might. Sanjeev, thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, the Australian Federal Government Agency, Safe Work Australia, says there is currently insufficient evidence about the impact of COVID-19 vaccines on transmission of the virus, which means that a worker could get COVID-19 even if they're vaccinated. Two questions – Does that mean that government has an excuse to lock down entire cities, states and countries whenever they feel the urge? And does that mean the vaccine doesn't work that well? I thought the idea of a vaccine was to enable us to return to normal, but I forget the magic word, the one that the left just love. Emergency. A health emergency or COVID emergency, a climate emergency. And if you dare disagree, then you'll be shut down. No reason, no
2: discussion, no hope. I'm Mike Ryan.